1: Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old fashioned. <laughs> Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello.
2: And welcome to Awesome Etiquette.
1: Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty.
2: Our show today is The Bee's Knees, because we are going to be talking about repeating stories. Our show today is The Bee's Knees, because we're going to talk about repeating... Oh, you got that! Okay, good. Just checking. (laughs) We're going to talk about repeating stories. We're going to talk about how to handle being a vegan on a business trip. And we also are really going to take a moment and delve into the topic of homelessness later on in our Postscript segment. All that's coming up.
1: Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media.
2: I'm Lizzie Post.
1: And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And we're from the Emily Post Institute.
2: I had a really just, you know one of those moments where someone says something to you and you're like, ah. That's just such a great visual or analogy or metaphor well, it wasn't really a metaphor, but uh, one of our listeners was writing in about when you're traveling and somebody is, is trying to talk to you and you don't want to talk to them and what could you do? We answered the question, we answered question on the question show. about yeah. this, yeah. And she wrote in and she said, you know, one thing you might want to think about is that extroverts and the person writing in was an introvert. Extroverts are like solar powered people they need outside forces to recharge them. So a conversation with someone on a plane or a train or a commute ride might mm-hmm. be the thing that energizes them and makes them feel good at the end of the day or makes them feel better, whereas an introvert is, like, battery-powered. The charge comes from inside themselves, so they need to kind of close out the outside world to recharge. And I thought that was just such a great visual for when you're dealing with people and maybe they might seem a little standoffish to you. Maybe take a minute and think, you know what, they might be
1: battery charged. You know, it's a great concept for etiquette because it's about the perspective that another person brings to a situation. And we all bring such richly varied perspectives.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's so easy, though, to look at someone and think, oh, gosh, this person is just overbearing. They're talk, 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 Mm talk, talk. Or it's so easy to quickly put the negative spin on it. And I found that these two ideas of of a person being, you know, an extrovert and an introvert, being solar-powered and battery-powered, it gave me a quick place to go that's very neutral, that doesn't make it personal Mm -hmm. to them being annoying or me being standoffish. It's just like, you know what? They might need this and I might need to put up my barrier to say, hey, this is not what I need. Or I can just look at them and say, oh, okay, you're kind of this type of person right now.
1: I really like this approach of um, being aware of other people's tendencies so you can help take care of them and maybe give them a little latitude also. I
2: think you're also taking care of yourself at the same time.
1: As is often the case with good business, it's good business for everyone involved. (laughs) And speaking of business, should we get to the business of some questions?
2: I think we shall.
1: Sure, you're right. But there's so much to learn how to do. Sure, there's a lot to learn. But it's worth it. And learning is easy. One way is by watching others.
2: On every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or give us a call at 802-866-0860.
1: This question has to do with vegans on the road. Hello. I will be traveling out of the country soon on business. I will be hosted by an organization where I and one other person will be guest speakers at a seminar After the seminar, our host will be taking us out for dinner, along with others who attended the seminar. My question is, how or when should I mention that I'm a vegan, or should I mention it at all? I've been in contact with my host regarding some details of the trip, and he has not asked about dietary restrictions or preferences. I'm fairly certain that this city does have restaurants that would accommodate a vegan diet, but I'm not comfortable suggesting that the entire group choose a restaurant based on my dietary restrictions." I want to be as inconspicuous as possible, but for health reasons, I'm not able to stray too far from the diet I'm accustomed to. Thanks very much. Considerate of carnivores.
2: I like how she or he or she, I don't know who, uh, titled it, considerate of carnivores. I do too. I like that. I think you definitely have to mention it. I think Mm -hmm. this is a health thing. I mean, you just can't go to a steakhouse on this. And, and, you know, if everything is cooked with beef broths, you know, if the vegetables are all boiled and that sort of thing, you really need to to make this known. Um, Most restaurants do have at least one or two vegan options or dishes that with a simple substitute, like leaving out some butter, become vegan options very quickly. And your host will be able to ask about that. But you should definitely let them know. I would say something like, James, I'm so looking forward to this trip. Uh, one thing I did want to mention is that I am a vegan and I wanted to make sure that wherever we'll be dining that there might be at least one option for me to be able to accommodate my dietary needs and I think that that would be a really understandable communication it's something that your host would not necessarily know to ask we always say that as a host you should ask and you know when we host our, our training we always ask people do they have dietary preferences we've had some folks come who adhere to halal conditions and so we may made sure that all the places we ate at knew that and were able to prepare that. I would have loved it if your host had done that, but your host didn't.
1: So it's up to you to speak up. And definitely thinking about your host is key there. You you want to help your host as much as you can. And if you put yourself in their position, I'm sure you would want to know if one of your guests had dietary restrictions.
2: One final thought is just that you can always offer to do the legwork. You can always say, I'd be more than happy to recommend a couple restaurants or do some research and find a couple restaurants. If you don't want to take that on, I totally understand.
1: I love that advice on how to do it. Definitely the sooner the better. Yes. Oftentimes you'll communicate this kind of information when you're responding to the invitation when they first mention that they want to take you out to dinner as part of their hosting. The other opportunity is when you're going over logistics for the trip, when you're exchanging phone numbers you're going to use on the road. And if you have that logistics discussion sooner, it'll give you an opportunity to bring up your dietary restrictions.
2: Best of luck to you, considerate of carnivores. We hope that you have a wonderful trip. As seminar presenters, we both hope that you have an excellent presentation and that uh, and that you get a really delicious meal while you're abroad. Our next question is titled, Oh, you don't remember me. Dear Lizzie and Daniel, Imagine you're at a social gathering. I'm thinking the opening of an art exhibition. You spot a vague acquaintance, walk up to them, and say, Hi. And then, oh nightmare, they don't recognize who you are. What happens next is that you have to remind the person by telling them who you are or where you met. Either they know you right away or it takes a while, but whatever the case, everything from there on in is awkward and uncomfortable. I would like to ask you how to handle this kind of situation. How can I be graceful about it? I mean, it doesn't bother me at all that they don't remember me. It happens to me, too. But how do I make this clear in a kind way so that we can continue the conversation? Kind regards, Hildy.
1: This is one of those classic etiquette conundrums. But I did have this experience. I was at a wedding very oh. recently, and it was with the same group of people as a wedding I'd attended about a year before. OK. But I hadn't seen many of these people since. And I went through both sides of this <laughs> equation multiple times over the course of that that wedding experience, that wedding weekend. And I always really appreciated it when the person who might not have been remembered was able to accept and move on very smoothly the reality of that situation and similarly when someone wasn't remembering me i was reminding myself how difficult it can be when you're meeting so many people and then yeah. you're trying to remember those people a long time later and you're meeting all these people again everyone understands. And I think that's one of the first things that you can remind yourself that's going to help you with this difficult situation. I think this question really gets to the heart of good etiquette, because ultimately etiquette's about making other people feel comfortable. Yeah. And what has the potential to make someone feel uncomfortable here is your sense of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's your ability to manage your own discomfort, your own... Um... Oh,
2: for not having been recognized, you mean? Exactly. Like, don't take it personally. Exactly.
1: Like, you're the yeah. one here who theoretically has been offended. And what yeah. might be awkward for that other person is that you're taking offense. So I think you've already identified in the way this question's asked the the good answer, which is that it's really up to you to be smooth and to not make it an issue. I think the best way to do that is to move on quickly, to have that conversation topic that you're ready to move on to. And it can be anything. It can be any of those delicious small talk topics that you like to talk about when you meet someone for the first time. But my answer is to get into that territory as quickly as possible.
2: I think you also give the first forgiveness is it so if let's say
1: absolutely you don't
2: remember me I would say oh don't worry I totally understand outside the kids soccer leagues I'd have trouble placing anyone as well or you know like I awesome etiquette gets support from Storyworth. there are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing from hilarious to heartfelt tear jerking to plot twisting mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy often have the problem where I am very good at Remembering faces. So it's, I'm often the person who's been forgotten, but I'm recognizing someone else and want to go talk to them. So I'll say something like, Oh, don't worry about it. I'm, I, you know, I'm really good at remembering faces. So this happens all the time. Don't worry. Just something to put them at ease so that, you know, they know it. Most people wouldn't remember us from such a short interaction. But I had such a nice time talking to you. I wanted to say hi again.
1: Thank you for making that allowance. I feel more comfortable <laughs> even in this answer having heard those words, it really is reassuring. And if you've got the wherewithal to make that kind of reassurance, absolutely make it.
2: And I think it's not a bad thing to remind them of where you met, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, no, it totally understand. We met at that such and such barbecue or, you know, we met up at the club or we met over at this thing. I think it's it's a nice way to just let them know you aren't totally out of the blue
1: and reestablishing that connection that thing that you use to remember who they are to identify them is going to help them maybe remember you in the future hilde where that's a couple different ways you might approach this situation if it comes up again in the future and we hope you have a great time at your next social gathering this question's titled please pay me (laughs) hi lizzie and dan My husband and I were recently in a situation where people did not pay us back for items we had agreed ahead of time to split. My cousin and I were jointly having a family party for our daughter's birthdays. The party was held at my parents' home, and it was decided the week before that my cousin would bring fruit and veggies, I would bring the cake, and we would order pizza and split the cost of the pizza. The day of the party, my cousin's family was running late. The pizza was delivered before they got there, so we paid the full $100 for the pizza, They arrived about 15 minutes later, and they were able to enjoy the pizza. However, my cousin never paid for her share of the pizza order, and I was unsure the polite way to ask for the money. I realized that I have some personal work to do in setting boundaries and asking for what I need. However, I do not want to come off as rude, demanding, or a cheapskate. What are some polite ways of saying, hey, pay up, thank you, please pay me?
2: Oh, please pay me. I feel your pain. It is always awkward, whether it's someone close to you or maybe someone not so close to you. When money is owed and it's not really being delivered, that's just never a fun situation. I think that for the situation you're talking about, especially because she's family and there was an understanding ahead of time, that you have every right to just be able to pick up the phone, give her a call, and say, Hey, Carrie, the kids' party was so much fun, but I was hoping that we could settle the cost of the pizza before it runs on to long. Any chance you'd be able to give me that $50 in the next two weeks? And that gives her kind of a timeline to be aiming for. It gives her the amount. It reminds her that this was something that you had said you were going to split in cost. And I think that that's A good way to do it. she oftentimes I find that people just forget and it's not that they're trying to to stiff you out of cash. It's just simply that they've forgotten. And I really want people to not feel like they are cheapskates for asking for money that is owed them.
1: Absolutely. And it's a nice little reminder. If you owe someone money, it's nice to get to them before you put them in the position of having to ask. Absolutely. The one other thing that came up for me in the question, please pay me, acknowledges that sometimes she has trouble mentioning or bringing this up, and I was wondering if the the receipt had ever been shared, because sometimes that's another place where you have an opportunity to remind somebody that you're splitting costs. Yeah. You know, the pizza was delivered before you got here. I've got the receipt. I could get it for you or share it with you or... Um, I'd even
2: just hand the receipt over say, hey, here's the receipt for the pizza. Get me half, you know, in the next week or two would be great.
1: Exactly. It's another opportunity to bring up that question of money and do it in a very practical, informational way that's not fraught.
2: We truly hope that that helps and gives you some language to uh, get your cash back. Um, and hopefully this will be resolved quickly for you.
1: Our next question is titled, Pete and repeat are in a boat. Pete falls out. Who is left? Repeat. Pete and Repeater in a boat. Pete falls out. Who is left? Repeat. Pete and Repeater in a boat. Pete falls Hi, out. Lizzie and Dan. I have a question for you regarding polite behavior when someone tells you a story you have already heard. In these situations, I usually pretend I haven't heard the story and let the individual continue recalling the experience. Sometimes this can go on for a long time. While I feel like this is the best approach, my facial expressions and reactions to key points in the story, I believe, come across as fake because I already know what is about to happen. Other times I will nod my head as the storyteller continues and say, oh, yes, I believe you did tell me this. You ended up doing X, (laughs) Y, Z. However, they usually will continue on with the story. Is there a polite way to interrupt the storyteller and recall the story with them, or should I just keep pretending that I have never heard it? Warm regards, Amanda.
2: Oh, Amanda, I love this question because I have a friend I hang out with a lot who complains about this all the time. He says, you know, one day I'll meet a woman who's going to laugh at all my jokes and listen to all my stories no matter how many times she's heard them. And when I find her, I will marry her. (laughs) This really is a thing. I mean, it's when you have people that tell the same stories over and over, what do you do? Especially if you, yeah, Dan's pointing to himself right now, just <laughs> so you know. And yes, he does repeat stories a lot. And so do I. I've got stories that I tell. You know, we have we have lives Guilty and we have paths. Charged. We have examples that we use on a regular basis but I actually think that what Amanda is doing right now is exactly the right thing to do. And judging by my friend who says this frequently, he, you know, that he's like, could you just listen to the story and laugh? Or could you just do this? And the flip side of it is, is, well, you know, you're telling me something you've already told me, which tells me that you don't remember the times we hang out and you don't remember the things you tell me. And that doesn't make me feel great. So that's the flip side to consider. Mm-hmm. But, I think that you, Amanda, are doing the right thing. I think that when you cut someone off and say something like, oh, you've told me this before, all of a sudden that whole moment in your conversation falls flat and the person feels like, oh, oh, well, where do I go from here? And you're kind of like it's almost like you've decided to dictate the conversation now, like you're critiquing the conversation that you're having. I like your second method just because by jumping in and maybe saying, oh, this was the time that you did the such and such. And then it's kind of, playing into the story without cutting it off. And that's what I find works best with my friend is sometimes I like letting them know that, yes, I do know this story, but maybe there's more details about it that I want. Or maybe there's a different point that we're making about it right now. And just go for it with them. I know? love that approach of
1: appreciation. <laughs> I think yeah. that's so the spot. It's like if, if they're telling the story again, they probably like it. <laughs> and that might be a time to say, you know, I love this story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the part where,
2: the da 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 happens
1: exactly, and and then you're right in the game with them, and and I, I see that happening here yeah. for sure.
2: And I like I like the idea of asking more questions. You know, how big do you think that hillside was when the moose was chasing you? Do you mean you cover a hundred yards, two hundred yards? <laughs> it kind of it can be it can actually become a fun part of your relationship with someone if you embrace it and roll with it rather than get annoyed and irritated mm-hmm. by
1: it. I know this one. Let, let, let me see if I can tell the end. Hold on a minute. Uh,
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Amanda, clearly you've struck on some really rich territory here that has some real resonance with the hosts of this show. And I hope that the next time you find yourself listening to that story again, you might remember this conversation and say to yourself, maybe this is that really special person in my life that I've been waiting for all along. Who was left? Repeat. <laughs> Pete and repeat are in a boat. Pete falls out. Who is left? Repeat. Pete and repeat are... Oh, you get the idea.
2: (laughs) But there's more. What's that? More questions coming up. But first, a word from our sponsors.
3: Here, let's
4: try another trick.
2: This next question is titled, RSVP, like for real. I need an answer. Dear Lizzie and Daniel... Recently, I invited one friend to go to a cooking course with me. He couldn't attend the original day that I had proposed, but promised to get back to me after he had looked at the course schedule. It's now been weeks, and despite following up with him, I haven't heard anything back. Do I have to wait to sign up for the course myself until I hear back from him about his availability? Or, alternatively, since I invited him for a particular day and he wasn't able to go then, can I move forward with my own plans at a time that works for me? More generally, how can I politely get a quicker response to my invitations? It feels impolite to give a deadline and demand a yes or no answer. I want to be accommodating, but still be able to attend events that require advanced planning, even if I end up doing so alone. Thank you in advance, Kate.
1: Oh, Kate, you are not alone in this. We hear all the time about people's inability to commit. Here, we
2: deal with it all the time.
1: Absolutely. and. The advice that we like to give is that you absolutely give a deadline, and you give them a little bit of a window. You let them know when that deadline is, and you don't say, okay, I need to know now. You need to make a decision in the next 30 seconds, unless they need to make a decision Mm, in in the the next next 30 30 seconds. seconds. Your, Your job as a host is to get that invitation issued so that someone, particularly a group that maybe has a little bit of trouble committing, have an opportunity to check calendars, think about whether or not they want to say yes or no, but absolutely include that deadline, put a moment in there, make a timeline, and share it. And- That's one of your jobs being a good host, making a good invite. You give someone enough information that they're able to participate well. And in this case, they need to know that you need to decide if you're going to sign up for this class, The available spots are going to run out, that people are going to need to make plans and that people are going to need to commit to hold time open in their schedule if they're really going to be there at some point in the future.
2: Yeah. And that can be said pretty lightly, too, which is Absolutely. what's nice is that, you know, like, hey, Kyle, I'm thinking of doing this cooking class and I want to see if you wanted to sign up with me. It'd be really fun. Let me know by Friday if you want to join. If I don't hear from you, I'm just going to sign up on my own. Like, that's it. And then you can let them know the plan if they don't get back to you. I think one of the questions that Kate had was, how do I get people to respond faster? Giving them deadlines and specifics can help. Letting them know your contingency plan if they can't go can help. But at the end of the day, you just can't make somebody else do something. So that's a harder thing to solve.
1: Kate, you mentioned here the the possibility of ending up going alone, and absolutely that's something to be prepared for and definitely only invite people to things that you'd want to be going to anyway. And this is where I started thinking to myself, you know, work friends are great, friends that you have cocktails with are great, but friends that you have shared interests with that are Other interests are great also. And sometimes it's a real opportunity to build new friendships and form new relationships that the folks that you're used to going out with after work might not be the same friends that are going to learn to appreciate opera with you. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't learn to appreciate opera and the opportunity to really grow some relationships in that new experience and in the venues that that new experience is going to take you into are really rich.
2: Kate, we truly hope that this helps fill out your social calendar in a way that you can feel confident.
1: For our final question today, we want to ask you, our audience, for help. We all know that manners change and evolve. it's one of the true pleasures of working at the Emily Post Institute is we get to witness this change and evolution in manners. And maybe 10 or 15 years ago, we got a lot of questions about the new vegetarian in the family and how to accommodate someone at a vegetarian diet. Maybe a little more recently than that, we got a lot of questions about the the new office recycling policy and how to get people to, to get on board with recycling in the office. And those questions have pretty much shaken out over the years. People have a pretty good understanding of how to accommodate a vegetarian and how to talk to an office mate who's not recycling. So we have a new etiquette that we're seeing emerge, and we'd really love to hear your thoughts. Joe from Atlanta, Georgia, had a question about e-cars. He's considering buying an electric vehicle, but that decision has brought up some questions that are, frankly, a new area of etiquette. So we pose it to you. Joe asks... How are people who own an electric vehicle and charge it at public stations supposed to behave? Electric vehicles, or EVs, take approximately four to six hours to charge with most normal chargers that businesses provide, and sometimes 20 to 30 minutes with quick chargers. Either way, it's much longer than you might spend pumping gas at the station, so you're most likely to leave your car while it charges. Is it okay to pull the plug on another vehicle's charger if you're on the verge of running out of a charge? Do you leave a note if you do? How do you deal with someone who does not have an EV car parking in an EV-designated spot, similar to handicapped spots? What if you need to leave your vehicle longer than 30 minutes or the four hours needed? How do you tell others it's okay to take my plug if you're going to be a while? This is even further complicated because some EV charging stations cost money, and you certainly don't want to inadvertently steal someone's charging time. Please, let us know what you think about this new territory, this new pumping station, so to speak. Do you own an electric vehicle? What has your experience been? Do you have any stories of good or bad etiquette that you've encountered? You can submit your thoughts to us at awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-866-0860. We look forward to featuring your thoughts in an upcoming show.
2: so much for your questions, and please don't forget to send us updates and comments. You mean that's all there is, just what we've
3: talked about?
1: Oh, no.
4: You can learn still more by watching Mother and Dad and other people who have good manners.
2: It's time for our Postscript segment, and a few weeks ago a listener sent us a really great question that got us thinking, and... In working through the advice, this topic evolved into something much larger. So we are devoting this week's Postscript segment, where we normally delve deep into a topic, to a conversation about homelessness. Here's our producer Hans with more.
4: So this all started with an email from a listener who had recently moved from a quiet suburban town to a much larger city for work. I love my job, they said, and my new surroundings. But one thing I'm not used to is encountering homeless individuals every day. It seems terribly rude to walk by a homeless person and not look at him or her, especially since they are often sitting on the sidewalk. Yet, I see people do this all the time. You always say how important it is to acknowledge others' presence, but wouldn't it be just as rude to smile at someone you're not planning to help? And making eye contact and then looking away would feel like staring. And what about requests for money? How do I say no briefly and tactfully if someone asks me outright? How do I treat these people with the dignity and respect they deserve without necessarily handing them money? Best new in town. We really appreciated this question. This is a really good question. It is a big question. This is a large topic and a really important one. So we decided that we wanted a little bit of help with some perspective on this. So I reached out to Senta Leff.
3: My name is Senta Leff, and I'm the executive director of the Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless.
4: So the Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless is an advocacy group here in Minnesota, and they lobby on issues of homelessness in our state. And I talked with Senta at their offices, and we wanted to know from Senta, as someone who works on behalf of this vulnerable population, what she would say to New in Town.
3: So I love this question. I love that this is a podcast about relationships because I think that this really is a person-to-person question. And the person who's asking it um, is already seeing that the person they're encountering on the sidewalk is a person. And that's a really great start. I have heard young people who are experiencing homelessness describe what homelessness is like. And none of the words that they chose were about uh, the physicality of not having a place to sleep. They talked about homelessness being like you're invisible, like you're worthless, you're unimportant, and you're meaningless. That's how it feels when you're that person on the street. So I love that the person who sent this question in is starting with this place of wanting dignity, but is struggling with the discomfort of the situation. And I think it's important to sort of sit with that for a second as well, because it is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable that we live in a society where there are this many people who don't have a place to live. And oftentimes the most visible people who we see on the street are sort of that stereotypical, often a single man holding a sign by himself. But it's important for us to remember on a national scale, the vast majority of people who experience homelessness are children. I think the average age of a homeless person in the United States is eight years old. So that's uncomfortable. That should make all of us uncomfortable. And what we do with that discomfort, I think, is what the the questioner is sort of asking us to consider together. So it's a very personal choice. There's certainly no right or wrong. I think if you're not comfortable giving money to someone who asks for it on the street, it's really important to make eye contact and to just politely tell them something simple like, I'm sorry, I can't, but I wish you well. Um, That offers a little bit of dignity to the person who's asking. Try to normalize it. They're a human being who's in a terribly desperate and undignified situation.
4: And I want to say that one thing we appreciated about this question is that our question asker, new in town, was really careful to stress that human dignity several times in their email. But they also asked for specific advice on the options to give or not give money to someone.
3: But there's a third option that I would ask listeners to consider, which is, doing something with the discomfort that they have about something that is truly a very solvable problem. So um, most metropolitan areas will have a street outreach team. If you see someone who looks like they're really in trouble and might need healthcare or um, food or a shower or any of the above you know, basic necessities that are nearly impossible without a place to live, Find what that street outreach organization is in your city. You know, you can tell them the last place, the last intersection where you might have seen someone. And they can deploy someone to give them basic hygiene products, offer them a place to sleep that night.
4: And if you feel more comfortable or excited about taking a longer view on the subject of homelessness, Center recommends getting involved in homelessness advocacy. You can call your local lawmaker. You can find a group who's doing this work and support them in whatever way you can. But she says we should do something because despite New Intown identifying people experiencing homelessness in a big city, it's actually much deeper and more widespread than that.
3: One of the things that I think is a, a common misconception about homelessness is that it only exists in certain places and spaces. Homelessness is very common in the suburbs, but is often a whole lot less visible. You know, about a third of people who are experiencing homelessness are working, uh, at least part-time, many of them full-time. But the cost of uh, a market-rate apartment hasn't kept up with the wages that they're earning in those minimum-wage or very low-wage jobs. So they're, they're less visible, but I guarantee you in the suburbs you've seen them, and they've probably been the person that's bagging your groceries or busing your table at a restaurant, um, and they are most certainly in your child's classroom.
4: Um, I think a lot of people make the assumption that homeless people have mental instability and or are dangerous. And so what would you say to that?
3: What I say to that is that homelessness is not a character flaw, it's a math problem. The number one reason why people become homeless is because they can't afford a place to live. And it's such a simple thing to say, but it's true. Um, There's not a single county anywhere in our country where someone can earn minimum wage and work only 40 hours a week and afford a market-rate one-bedroom apartment. So while it's true that there are complicating factors that certainly make it more difficult for individuals to escape homelessness, and those are the things that listeners might be considering right now, like mental health issues and chemical dependency, the fact of the matter is that certainly those challenges are found across the socioeconomic spectrum, right? We all know someone who's faced one of those problems Um, the defining difference is whether or not you have the economic security to weather some of those storms and tending to your own health care when you're homeless is virtually impossible and whether that's your chemical health or your mental health or your physical health i think it's so easy for all of us who are privileged enough to have a place to live to forget about the stability that that offers us just in terms of having a place to set our medication every day and remind us to take it, um, or to have access to a doctor and be able to have the stability in our lives to attend our appointments. Um, So there are situations where someone may be terribly unstable and uh, you're passing them on the street and you're concerned about your safety, and in those cases, I would absolutely say, cross the street, um, take care of yourself. But know that there's this third option of doing something else with your discomfort to help solve the problem and to ask yourself why it makes you feel so uncomfortable to see that in the first place and what you can do about it beyond handing a dollar to a stranger on the street.
4: It's important to remember, too, that healthcare issues are not the only thing that lead people into experiencing homelessness. Affordable housing is defined as spending no more than 30% of your income on housing. But there are tens of thousands of families that spend up to 80% of their income on where they live.
3: That just means that there's sort of like one problem, one crisis away from losing their place to live. And when you're living that close to the edge, what might look like an inconvenience to you and me is quickly a crisis that results in just a domino effect of losing the very foundation that everyone needs in order to live a stable life. So if your child is sick and you work at McDonald's, chances are if you don't show up to work, you'll lose your job. Um, If you don't have a car and you're late, you have to take three different bus lines to get to your job uh, and you're late, what happens? If you have unreliable transportation and your car breaks down, what happens? So there will always be um, economic crises for individual households and keeping in mind, asking ourselves, who is this population? It's not just that person that you see on the corner, right? There's an iceberg, and the folks that are most visible to you are just what, is, what you can see above the waterline, the tip of the iceberg. Underneath that are thousands and thousands of kids, who, if given the opportunity, can be just as successful as I am, as you are, as your listeners are.
4: Uh, that I like the iceberg analogy a lot. It's a much larger question that New town is asking.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: They're, they're asking, how do I deal with this that I see that I have to confront?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And, and yes, you have to understand how to engage those people that you do see who are in that iceberg tip. Mm-hmm. But understanding the wider spectrum is really important.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, agreed.
4: It can be really tough to know how to interact with a population that represents a problem that we know exists, but wish didn't. But I take away a lot from my conversation with Santa. Treat people as people. Use your discomfort as a tool for action. Keep in mind that experiencing homelessness is not a character flaw, but a math problem. And remember that there is a much larger problem beyond the most visible group of people you see on the streets of major cities. So if you want to educate yourself on the subject of homelessness, you can check out the National Alliance to End Homelessness is a good resource. Also, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. And for those street outreach programs that Santa mentioned where you can call uh, and get someone help if they need it, I just Googled street outreach In Twin Cities, which is where I live, and came up with several phone numbers and resources, which are now in my phone. Lizzie and Dan, what do you guys think? It certainly is.
2: It's a huge topic, and it's one that pulls at the heartstrings, especially when I heard the average age is eight And I know she said, I think, so that might not be an exact number, but I that was really shocking to me. But I think it brings that awareness up. I've always been really comfortable giving someone a smile, saying, you know, nothing today, but I hope you have a good day. For me, I care about treating that person like another human being, even if I'm going to set up the boundary that, no, I'm not going to give you food. No, I'm not going to stop my day and help you right now, but I am going to at least acknowledge That you're asking me for something. And if I can't give you anything, or if I'm choosing not to give you anything, I'll let you know that because that's the way I've personally decided to deal with that. And again, safety does trump. So if I ever see someone that isn't making me feel comfortable, I will cross the street, like Santa said, or I will not engage because I think that's my right and my self-protection to do that. But I love that there are resources to go to. And I'm, I'm really glad that we took the time to talk about this today.
1: I, I couldn't agree any more. And I also really appreciate hearing sent us perspective that a lot of the assumptions that we make about homelessness and the causes of homelessness and the the experience that people have of homelessness is um, is so varied that to generalize is a really powerful, but to stereotype, to apply those generalizations to each individual that you encounter is really incredibly inconsiderate. And I think that that's important. I want to conclude today's postscript by offering a, a really big thanks to Santa Lef from the Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless for talking with us and for sharing her thoughts. It's really important that we have all voices represented when we have a discussion like this and we really appreciate her taking the time to educate and inform all
4: of us.
3: Now is the time for all good men to get together with
4: one another Another their problems and I know their quarrels and try to live as brothers and try to find
3: Without stepping on one another And do respect other women of the world Just remember we all had mothers Make
1: this land a better land Than the world in which we live And help each
3: man be a better man With the kindness that to give I know we can make it I know done well we can work
2: it out Every week, we like to end with a listener's salute to good etiquette. And today we hear from Mary, who has a story about respiratory illness, a hospital visit with her young son, and the kindness of strangers.
0: Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I'm Mary, and I live in Kansas City. So this is a salute that I'd like to share that renewed my faith in humanity. This was about a month ago, and I have two sons, an almost 4-year-old and a 1-year-old and this was our first experience ever being in the hospital with one of them my my 1-year-old contracted RSV so we took an ambulance from the urgent care to the hospital downtown children's mercy and were there for 3 nights i had been sleeping at the hospital and had not left the building and was incredibly exhausted Emotionally, physically, mentally I hadn't seen my other son In a couple of days And our nurse who She's been there with us several days She said You know if you guys want to go get some dinner I can sit here and hold him And I I couldn't believe it That this nurse who didn't know me And it's not her job I mean she was willing to sit With my baby for an hour And just rock him You know, because he was really uncomfortable, and it had been a hard couple of days. We walked. We were downtown, and the only place open that we could see was a very nice restaurant. And I had been living in a hospital, was wearing, I think, leggings and an oversized T-shirt. I mean, I did not look like I was about to go out to dinner anywhere that was nicer than Taco Bell, you know. So they seemed very friendly and said, hey, do you know if there's any more casual dining around? And she, the hostess, she said, oh, please, please come right on in. And she showed us a seat at a little booth, but she turned out to be the manager said, you know, what are you guys up to tonight? And they said, oh, we're actually at Children's Mercy across the street. My my son has been there since Wednesday. And she was so kind and so empathetic. And I know it must be so hard for you all. I can imagine having a a kid in the hospital, and we see that sometimes. And you're doing a great job, and I know it's really rough. Just the way that she was so encouraging and kind and made no (laughs) deal about our appearance really blew me away and she served us herself she brought us a drink on the house it was really incredible so i guess uh what i really would like to say is is thank you thank you to our amazing nurses, that one in particular at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, and to so the manager at Pierponts at Union Station because people like you are making the world a better place.
2: Mary, thank you so much for sending in that salute. It was a truly touching story. First, we really hope that your son's illness has subsided and that that you're home and healthy and happy again. But truly what I love about Mary's story is that she... She took a moment, even in this really difficult time where she needed people to be looking out for her. um, She took a moment and said, you know, I know I'm not dressed appropriately for your restaurant. Can you point me in the direction? It was almost like the host guest dance was happening. Mm -hmm. She, you know, was asking for help rather than service and instead got incredible service, which I think was the absolute right thing for the uh, manager to do. But I think it's a really it's a lovely way. To see how people are being respectful and considerate of each other, no matter what's going
1: on for them. Absolutely. And I can really hear the gratitude in this salute, the genuine appreciation for those people that that made an effort to make a really difficult time just a little bit easier. We need your help. We need more salutes. We love getting your salutes. We love sharing them with our audience. So please send us your next etiquette salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a message on our phone at 802-866-0860. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Daniel underscore Post.
2: I'm at Lizzie A. Post.
1: On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute.
2: Another way to help us out is to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Our theme music was composed and performed by Bob Wagner, and our show is produced by Hans Buto.